So there's lots of good reasons for the workforce to be anxious. And the company that can retain that trust presumably is going to be in a better position to weather this, that their employees are going to be more willing to engage with the company and to help them figure out how do we move forward. Welcome back to the Business and Society Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Karub from Michigan News. On today's episode, we welcome two experts from University of Michigan's Ross School of Business to discuss the modern labor movement. In the wake of several major striking actions by unions across the state and country, we will discuss the state of labor in the U.S. and what it means for workers and companies alike. To discuss the current state of labor, we have Cindy Scapani, Professor of Business Administration and Business Law. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you. We also have Jerry Davis, Professor of Business Administration, as well as Management and Organizations. Welcome to you, Jerry. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Good to have you both. Let's get started. We'll open with a question for both of you. As we've all seen on the news, we've had strikes, near strikes, potential strikes all over. To name a few, we have the Hollywood Writer and Actors Unions, the Teamsters against UPS, and most recently, and close to home, the UAW against the Detroit Three Automakers. As we speak, Kaiser Permanente workers could walk as well. Of course, these are fluid situations here, and much could change depending upon when people listen to this episode. But still, there's a larger long-term phenomenon here, it would seem. What's so unique about right now that so many unions are voting to strike? You want to take a swing at that one, Jerry? Sure. Well, I think there's three major tectonic shifts that are all coming together right now and making it a really active time for labor. So the first one of these is that technological changes have really altered the context for business uh, and the way that businesses organize themselves. So I've referred to this as Nikeification, you know, that Nike famously uh, designs and brands their shoes and markets them, but they don't manufacture them. And I think of Nikeification as this process of selling out some of the core aspects of what the enterprise does. So back in the 1980s, GM had 900,000 employees, mm -hmm. and now they've shrunk down to maybe 150,000, something like that. Uh, in the 90s, they spun off Delphi, Ford spun off Visteon and Associates Capital. And so if you think of the way that businesses are organized these days, it's a lot more disintegrated. And so that creates one of the big tension points uh, for labor. It's a lot easier to organize the Ford Rouge plant when Ford owns the steel part and the glass part, and they're all interconnected. You shut down the steel part, you can organize the whole thing. That's a lot harder when you have a really disaggregated economy. So that's one thing that I'd point to. Just a, a fun auto industry example. I don't know if you've heard of Fisker. Fisker, yes. Yeah, so Fisker, they're a publicly listed car company, one of, I don't know, 10 of them out there now, which is kind of shocking to us. Fisker's making a competitor to the Ford F-150 truck. According to their latest 10K, Fisker has 850 employees. They're actually relying on a Canadian company called Magna International right. and Foxconn to do the actual manufacture of their cars. So they look a lot more like Nike. Well, how do you organize 
for a company that has 850 white collar employees. So that's one just big tectonic shift is that industry's been really reorganized in a grand way. Uh, second thing I'd point to is the rise of the contractor economy and gig work, also enabled by technology. But you look at DoorDash, they have 16,000 employees and 6 million dashers who are all nominally independent contractors. So in some sense, you know, this has been exacerbated by COVID and by work from home. An awful lot of work is done by people who are not physically together in the same workplace. And they may not even be employees. They may be contractors or temps or something else. And so that's creating a real tension. Contractors are not covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act, or at least not, Cindy can, I think, clarify some of that, but overtime doesn't apply to them. Uh, harassment laws may not apply to them. They're just a really different category, and that's a lot of the economy. So how do we think about the nature of employment? And the third, and I promise the last one, <laughs> is, uh, is the reversal of globalization, particularly under the last two presidential administrations. There's been a real move back towards manufacturing in the U.S., particularly around the green economy, um, EVs and batteries. You get different different tax credits for your electric vehicle, depending on how much of it is manufactured in the U.S. So you put all these three things together, like the shape of industry, the nature of the employment relation, and government policies around globalization and trade, and suddenly it just throws everything up in the air. So a lot of things are really being redefined right now. Cindy, what, you want to take a stab at that one? Um, yeah, I would just add, you know, when times were particularly tough uh, with COVID, with the economy, you know, with the economic recession, the workers were asked for concessions. And I'm thinking primarily in the auto industry right now. And they gave them. They were to help keep the company afloat, right? So in the auto industry, there were cuts in benefits. There were new dual-tiered pay structures and relatively low raises. But right now, we're in a period where we've seen a short supply of workers, um, and we've seen supply chain disruptions. We've also seen some very high figures for pay for management at the top. So in 2018, the SEC required companies to disclose the CEO to average worker pay ratio. So we have that information now front and center. Um, and that's disclosing how much more the CEO is making than the average worker. The U.S. happens to be the leader in this regard with the highest ratio. And they've shown that the top executives of the 500 largest public companies make close to and sometimes over 300 times that of the average worker. And that pay gap hasn't been decreasing over time. And I suspect the SEC was hoping the disclosure would help shame the companies into reducing it. But instead, I think no CEO wants to be on the low end of that. You know, right. so and you're trying to pay for the best talent and you've got a market telling you what those numbers look like. Um, so I think at this time, labor unions may feel, though, that they have some leverage. They're seeing those high numbers. They backed off when times were tough, but now with the shortage, phenomenal increases at the top. I think they're saying, you know, what about us? Um, we're here, too, and the company wouldn't be successful without its rank-and-file workers. And right now, I think might be a time for the unions to, to push for a share of the spoils. 
Right. And uh, so that's sort of the perspective of the the worker, right, who's experiencing everything that you and Jerry have laid out. Uh, how do you think these strikes, Cindy, reflect corporate leadership in the industries currently facing strikes? I think what's particularly interesting with the UAW strike, for example, is the number that they're putting on the table. They're saying roughly they want 40% raises over the next four years. And if you take a look at, you know, the pay increases in the CEOs, it was about 40% over the past four years. So they're they're targeting that. And of course, the CEO job isn't anything like the average worker job. So it's an apples and oranges thing. But I think when an average worker sees that CEOs are making, you know, 300 times more. So I've seen some conversions here. um, And I tried to do some quick math myself (laughs) before I came. This converts in some cases to CEOs making over $110,000 per day. Um, or put another way, it would take 300 years for the average worker to make what a CEO makes in a year. Now, much of this pay is tied to performance, but performance tends to be measured in share price. At least where stock options are part of the pay package. And stock options generally only have an upside. Um, as the share price goes up, the option value goes up. If it goes down, the options are often favorably repriced, so the executives really aren't even taking a hit there. So the bottom line is that they're doing better when the shareholders profit. So although the executives have a duty to act in the best interest of the firm as a whole, which should include the workers and a number of constituencies, it's still skewed with the pay scales toward a shareholder focus. We get back to the old Main Street versus Wall Street battles. Um, we may leave the average worker there then feeling very left out of the equation when they're seeing all of these numbers and shareholders profiting too. But again, it's those productive workers that are the backbone of any organization. And when they feel valued, they would typically be you know, more productive, and that's good for the organization as well. So um, during the COVID crisis, we talked a lot about the essential workers. But I'm thinking perhaps companies could start considering their employees as essential workers They are essential to the company, and if corporate leadership could keep this top of mind, I think it's very important to figure out that balance there between the workforce and the shareholders. This episode is sponsored by the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Through our podcast, you connect with the people and experiences that define the Ross way. Check out our other podcasts, such as Business Beyond Usual, an exploration of the full-time MBA experience, and Working for the Weekend, a deep dive into the part-time MBA experience on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Jerry, from an organizational theory perspective, what are some common pitfalls that are leading to the current state of labor relations, and how can organizations build more trust uh, with their employees, which seems like a way to piggyback or dovetail on what Cindy was saying? No, exactly right. What Cindy was pointing out about the vast sort of discrepancy between what executives make and what workers make, that is really visible to people, and that's a pretty strong uh, rallying cry. Uh, We're also seeing a moment where people under the age of 40 are a lot more sympathetic to unions. So in some sense, unions have uh, the wind at their back. This is a sort of a great time uh, in, in some sense, to be organized labor because there's a lot more popular support than we've seen in recent years. 
The tricky thing is that it is increasingly feasible for management to create alternative organization structures. So, um, you know, you had asked, well, how is management thinking about this? You know, how are they thinking about this situation? How are they processing it? Imagine you are making the Ford F-150 at the Rouge plant. You're making the lightning electric car, and you learn that a competitor that has 850 employees and is using contractors to make their trucks, that they are coming for your bread and butter model. Um, that's likely to create a whole lot of anxiety. And it's not just Fisker. It's kind of shocking how how many car companies are out there? If you'd asked me 20 years ago, how many publicly traded American car companies will there be in 2023? I would have said three, maybe two, maybe one. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty possible to see lots of alternatives, but certainly not more than that. And there's more like 10. It's kind of shocking that the barriers to entry in the industry. Uh, have gotten so much lower because making electric cars is just a lot easier than making internal combustion engine cars. There's a lot fewer parts. There's a lot less interdependence. And so it's easier for someone to just launch a competing vehicle. For these companies to make this transition in the face of sort of new flavors of competition, they kind of need to maintain the trust of their workforce that if you want to make safe well-made vehicles that you can stand behind, like Ford does at GM and Stellantis, uh, you need the trust of your workforce. To make this transition to a new flavor of vehicle, you need the people that work for you to have some trust that they're going to be there to sort of make this whole thing work. And I think that's really uh, the trick, is how do you do that in a world where management is increasingly done by algorithms? If you step outside the auto industry uh, and look more broadly, you know, even at our students, an awful lot of People are getting their jobs these days using online vendors like Indeed.com or HireVue. Mm -hmm. uh, AI is doing the interviewing. You show up at work and you're managed by algorithms rather than a boss. Your algo can tell you you're fired. And so there's just so much change going on. Um, the value for the company of having a tight relationship with the workforce is that they can weather these changes and make it to what comes next. So that would be uh, the optimistic case. The pessimistic case is that a lot of things going on in our environment are not lending themselves to trust. So there was a study that came out in May looking at GAI and its impact on the workplace. And the researchers found that companies whose workforces were more exposed to GAI, artificial intelligence like ChatGPT, uh, were getting higher valuations. And the interpretation was that Wall Street was already pricing the layoffs in. Mm. <laughs> mm. And so that's the tricky thing is that if Wall Street or shareholders believe um, that there's value to be had by replacing people by GAI, companies might well move in that direction. So there's lots of good reasons for the workforce to be anxious. And the company that can retain that trust presumably is going to be in a better position to weather this, that their employees are going to be more willing to engage with the company and to help them figure out how do we move forward. There's a lot of placing of bets going on, right, by both the labor and, and management. Uh, and this touches a bit on what you said, Jerry. Is this a case of rising tides lifting all ships, or 
uh, are unions winning battles but ultimately losing the wars, like, for instance, the war against AI and losing their job to a, a maybe sentient being, maybe not sentient being. I don't know where we stand with that yet. Uh, do you have a sense that this current spate of labor activism uh, ultimately benefits workers or helps a few short term, but leads to more job cuts, plant closings, offshoring and the like? Yeah, I would want to start from the point that sort of plant closings, job cuts, those are decisions made by management. Those are not laws of nature that you're required to do. So they're decisions made by management within a public policy context. So I would sort of back it up a bit from what can a particular company do to ask what can policy do to create an environment where it pays management to make this transition in a way that's sort of good for everybody involved, something that really is a rising tide raising all boats. Um, I would point to something that happened last week that I don't think got a lot of attention here in the national press but may turn out to be historic. So California's fast food industry now has a $20 an hour minimum wage at the state level for fast food workers. And it applies to any franchise that has at least 60 outlets in the country. They're all bound by this new $20 an hour rule. And they've also created a council that has nine members, four from management, four from labor, and one from the public that will sort of set standards and wages going forward. This is pretty historic. I've never yeah. seen anything like that. And the reason why it's so interesting is that it's not Ford or GM making the agreement. The whole industry is bound by this at the state level. And so to me, this seems like an interesting, potentially visionary approach to things. Um, and the companies seem to be on board with this. They want certainty. So the, the numbers are kind of crazy. There's 550,000 fast food workers in California, which is, you know, far larger than, than the auto industry. Sure. There's a whole lot of people involved. Um, but there have been hundreds of strikes, something like 450 in the last three years of fast food outlets in California. Um, nobody wants those strikes. Management doesn't want them. Labor doesn't want them. They just want predictability and a mutually beneficial agreement. And it looks like this might be that. So I would say, you know, because of the changes that we've talked about so far, that's the kind of thing we should be looking to is more visionary ways of thinking about how labor and management can collaborate uh, to create a reasonable climate. Right. Not collaboration as window dressing, but real collaboration. What do you think of that, Cindy? I agree completely. And that's fascinating about you know, California is often at the forefront of of many of these issues, and that's a fascinating approach to it. I also think the current wave of activism might help companies remember how essential the workforce is, um, how you treat your workers gets reflected in how they treat your customers. It gets reflected into the effort they put into the product, the quality of the product, whether they're shortchanging anything. I mean, we've seen a lot of catastrophes because something didn't happen properly, because workers were afraid of management or afraid of losing their job. And I think going back to what Jerry said on trust, it's it's highly critical you know, to keep the companies uh, operating at a level that they want to operate, that the employees feel protected. And Maybe, you know, just maybe this wave of activism could help be a rising tide to lift all ships if it helps bring these issues of 
how you treat your employees uh, more to the fore. And there are reasons to be positive. If people will be willing to give a little, to get a little, be creative, see the systemic change as opposed to, you know, change on the more micro scale. You're both professors at Michigan Ross, as I noted, and are teaching and guiding the next generation of business leaders. So how can the up-and-comers tackle the current labor challenges we face? Jerry, you want to start? Sure. No, I, I love that question. When I arrived at the school 25 years ago, my department was called Organization Behavior and Human Resource Management. And prior to that, it was called OBIR, Organization Behavior and Industrial Relations, because the major issues for a, our department was sort of human resources, particularly in heavy industry, particularly the auto industry. And it's kind of interesting as we've moved into more of a service economy, the focus on labor and the place of labor in the enterprise, I don't think has been highlighted as much. You could go through an awful lot of business classes and not know that there were things called unions. Well, now we're at this moment that almost feels like the 30s in terms of the policy ferment and the changes in the organization of production. Now is a really interesting time to make choices that are going to shape the way that labor and management connect for the years to come. I mean, it's, I think people don't always recognize that auto jobs were not good jobs before the 30s. They were not considered great jobs that people you know, wanted a part of uh, early on in the industry. They became good jobs because of the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, the Wagner Act enabling unionization. The definition of how labor was going to be done happened during the 1930s in a way that created the prosperity that we saw, particularly in the post-war era. And I feel like we're at a very similar sort of moment now where these tectonic changes taking place around how we organize production, what counts as an employer, a contractor, those things are sort of bubbling up in ways that really require thoughtful policy. Um, and I would love for our students to sort of understand what are those underlying shifts in the nature of labor, but also see the opportunities to create more equitable enterprises, to take these new tools that we've got and create something that are going to create the kind of prosperity that we saw in the immediate post-war era. There's a chance here to do that. There's a chance to recognize some of the ways in which it's like the 1930s, um, but it's also, you know, 100 years on in terms of technological progress and everything else. What were your thoughts on that, Cindy? Yeah, um, I think I agree with what Jerry was saying. And in addition, I guess I'd like our next generation of business leaders to be really careful in considering trade-offs in their business decisions carefully consider, you know, what they're trying to incentivize. Um, if you set up a compensation plan that focuses on share price, well, then you've got profit, you know, shareholder profit being the front seat of all of your decisions. I'd like them to see the workers as essential. I'd like them to be looking at compensation and benefits that make the workers feel proud to be a part of that company, to be able to afford to buy the product that they're making, and um, again, to be able to put their, you know, their blood, sweat, and tears into it and feel like they've done something well, but they need to be protected and they need to trust the organization and they need to be fairly compensated for it. And I'd like, again, our our students to be thinking about those trade-offs as they become the leaders making um, these decisions going forward. 
That's great. Well, thank you both. That's all for us here at Business and Society. I'd like to thank our guests, Cindy Scapani and Jerry Davis, for sharing their time and expertise. This episode was made in partnership with Michigan Ross and Michigan News. Make sure to check out the show notes for more details on topics, links to research, and more. Thank you for listening to a Michigan Ross podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Jeff Karub and J.T. Godfrey. Audio engineering and editing by Jonah Brockman. And theme music, Lost Einsteins, by Jeff Karub. Stay connected by following our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To learn more, read full-length articles of the podcasts at www.michiganross.umich.edu slash news. 